Chapter 17 of Women, Children, Love and Marriage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Women, Children, Love and Marriage by Catherine Gascoigne Hartley. Section 11 of Children. Sex Instruction. The Age at Which Knowledge Should Be Given. A story is recorded of a father and mother in ancient Greece, who, being concerned for the welfare of their only son, went to a renowned teacher and asked him to educate and take full charge of their child. "'How old is your son?' questioned the teacher. "'Just three. The sage shook his head. "'I am sorry, but you have come to me too late. The boy's character is decided already.' I was reminded of this most instructive story as I read the account of the evidence given by the Reverend the Honourable Edward Littleton before the Birth Rate Commission of the National Council of Public Morals. For while I agree wholeheartedly with the late headmaster of Eton College as to the necessity of instructing the young in the facts of sex, I disagree with his view as to the method of the teaching, and, even more, I disagree emphatically as to the age at which instruction should begin. Dr. Littleton holds that the first lessons should be given at the age of nine years, when the boy ought to be taught the facts of maternity. This knowledge to be supplemented by further teaching at the age of twelve or thirteen, explaining the even more important, for the boy, facts of paternity. Now, it is here that I venture to disagree, and think that Dr. Littleton has fallen into the very common error of underestimating the child's intelligence and boundless curiosity. It is in the very early nursery days that sex education is most urgently needed. To wait until the age of nine years has been reached is often to wait too late. In a vast number of cases, it is locking the stable door after the horse has been stolen. In all children, the activity of the intelligence begins to work at a very early age, and parents who are not willfully blind must know that this activity tends to manifest itself in an inquisitive desire to know many elementary facts of life, which are dependent upon sex. The primary and most universal of these desires is the desire to know where the new baby comes from. A child of four or even younger may begin to ask questions on this matter quite simply and spontaneously. The degree of curiosity, as also the frankness with which it is expressed, will differ, of course, in different children, but I am certain this curiosity is present, and at times active in all children. If they do not question their elders, they will certainly puzzle over the matter themselves. Often they will talk with older companions, and gain the information they are seeking in the worst possible way. Thus the first teacher of the child must be the mother, the one who is most constantly with the child, tending him in washing, undressing, and in all the daily needs of his little body. It is the mother who ought to be the child's supreme trainer. Few of us understand the confusion and hurt that may be caused by a mother's stupid silence and even more stupid hints and evasions and made-up fables. The false stories of babies brought by the doctor or the stork or a little sister or brother found under the gooseberry bush are never believed. While the fantastic ideas of birth that the child makes up for himself fix their untruth into the immature minds, and afterwards they cannot be checked, 
owing to childish concealments which always spring up so rapidly to meet any expression of adult reticence. These birth fantasies, though the child seems to outgrow them, are not really forgotten but remain active in the unconscious mind. In this way, trouble is often started that will be determinative of the gravest evils in later adult life. Parents are greatly to blame for not answering the questions of their children and being blind to their natural curiosity. And I would emphasise again that this curiosity is present even when no questions are asked. There need be no spoken words to make the child feel that its questions are discouraged. All adults are surprisingly ignorant of the affectability of children, their quick response to every kind of influence. In the case of the birth of another child, an usurper who takes the older child's place, this affectability is exceedingly acute on account of the emotional disturbance in excitement and possible jealousy. And by means of the adult attitude, the very certain interest and investigation of the child into what is happening may so easily become confused and connected with what is shameful and wrong. And the trouble is aided, and usually in the worst possible manner, by the sharpest observations and deductions made by the child from unconsidered actions and overheard remarks of parents and of servants and other adults, none of whom have any idea of the child's watchfulness or his curiosity in this matter. We think little children are not interested in birth because we do not want them to be interested. And they, with the almost uncanny sagacity which children show, understand this desire only too well and too quickly. I had a striking illustration of this curious adult blindness quite recently. Two mothers, who were sisters, were pregnant at the same time. Each mother told me privately that her children were not interested in the event, or in any way curious, but that her sister's children were curious, and wanting to find out what was happening. It would have been useless to tell these mothers the truth, yet both of them were intelligent. They believed that their own children had no curiosity because they wished to believe this, not because it was true. Thwarted curiosity is one of the most frequent causes of emotional disturbance in the first years of life. Do we not all know children who, as they get older, exhibit an unreasoning curiosity about everything? Opening drawers, looking into the envelopes of other people's letters, searching excitedly for what they do not want. We want to ask the question, why does the child do this? What is it that urges him to act like a peeping Tom? For he is urged. You will find this habit of needless prying almost impossible to check. It may persist into adult life. Do not we all know grown-ups who cannot refrain from prying? Always curious they are, on all occasions, seeking for knowledge they do not want. This seeking action is symbolic. It implies that the search for the thing that is not wanted, the curiosity over something of no interest at all, is a substitute action for something that at one time was wanted, something about which knowledge was desired, and desired so much that it would not be denied. It was a curiosity so real that the thwarting of it has started emotional trouble of which these searching acts and persisting curiosity are the symbol or sign. This substitute formation is one of the commonest emotional processes in children. 
The child pries, opens drawers and letters, collects useless objects, aimlessly searches for knowledge he does not want, because there is some knowledge he wants tremendously badly, but cannot speak about. That is why he persists in his habits of peeping and prying, in spite of your scoldings and punishments. He must persist, unless you deaden his character so terribly by your ill-judged repression, that even this substitute relief is closed. Your child will then, probably, find some other make-believe comfort. He will bite his nails, pick his nose, or other much worse habits may begin. Or again, the emotional disturbance may be so acute that it becomes impossible for the child to face, so that he fails in achieving any kind of symbolic replacement. The thwarted and emotionally overcharged curiosity is thrust back into the psyche, where it remains a cause of ill health of body and uncleanness of mind, until that time in the adult years, when the harvest of tares is reaped from the bad seed that has been sown. The parents have the greatest responsibility, as I have said already. A child of four or even younger may begin to ask questions of its mother, simply and spontaneously. It is the child who must guide the parent. But again, I would give warning. The mother must not be over-eager, or she will fall easily into the error of stimulating instead of quieting the child's restless inquiring mind. The child at the age when such questions will first be asked and should be answered will very quickly tire of any information that may be given to it. It will break off to run away and play and will interrupt the most beautiful and carefully prepared lessons. And if the mother is wise, she will never go beyond the interest of the child or the satisfying and nothing further of the special curiosity which at that special time is occupying the child. If this course is pursued, the child will probably continue to ask for information, though there can be no certainty that this desirable result will follow. But where such opportunities arise, the right kind of sex instruction can be attempted. For the mother will be able to give answers in natural conversation, which will not force information not sought for by the child. When so treated, it will be found that children are not overburdened by the subject. They will interrupt and break away from the answer to the question they have asked to speak about toy soldiers or dolls. This, to me, is the immense value of this form of teaching. The child has the information, and yet does not trouble about it when it is not to the point. Such a result can never be gained by means of set talks or fixed lessons, especially if these are mixed up with warnings and much vague talk of things that the child neither cares for nor understands. I should, however, be giving a wrong impression if I left the matter here, so that this answering of a child's questions seemed to be a simple matter. It is not simple. For each child, as for each adult, the problems of sex are personal problems. And the child whose problem is the hardest, who most urgently needs help, will hardly ever ask questions. Instruction in sex is not, and never can be, like teaching the child about other things. That is what so many of the modern advocates of sex education so entirely forget. In every child, as I have tried to show you, there are hidden conflicts of jealousy, of love, of hate, which determine beforehand its response to the teaching that is given by the parents. I cannot here treat at all adequately this difficult question. 
It is one on which I have written elsewhere. Mother and Son, Sex Education and National Health, The Mind of the Naughty Child. I can say only what I have emphasised already, that from the start to the end, sex education is an emotional education. That, of course, is why it is so difficult. There is, in my opinion, too firm a belief in the efficacy of formal instruction. The way is not so easy as this to discharge our debt to the young. And sometimes I fear that parental talks about sex, in particular when such talks are delayed until the boy or the girl is reaching puberty, or until the time when the dangers of school life have to be met, involving, as it must, a sudden breaking through of the silence of years, may work for harm instead of good. That this is so in the case of some boys and girls I know to be true. You see, you cannot grow flowers in a soil choked already with weeds. End of chapter 17